So for, for everybody out there who may not know Blake Butler, uh, Blake has been one of the quiet heroes in, in the InfoSec community for a very long time. Um, from my knowledge, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you've spent a good amount of time in pen testing, open source intelligence, um, deconstructing, reversing, you know, a bunch of different um, tasks at hand in really refining the craft of, you know, um, InfoSec as, as we, we call it today. Um, I've, I met you a few years ago and I was just, just pretty impressed and, and I really enjoyed your demeanor and we've worked alongside each other, you know, through barriers over the years. I don't really know what you're working on. You don't really know what I'm working on, but we keep kind of butting up into each other on, on different things. And, um, so, you know, the, the, the mic is yours. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell, tell the folks out there know where you came from what you're working on and where you're going yeah totally uh so uh like you said my my name is blake butler um i was previously the lead technical investigator for paypal security threat intelligence team um currently uh the the emerging threats researcher so i spent a lot of time looking at a, a lot of different threats to the organization and that you know varies from um you know ddos attacks the malware to you know in some cases even physical acts of violence um which which in in many capacities a lot of the tooling that you provide uh dan comes extremely useful uh but previously you know in in another uh a few years back i uh, i graduated from the university of advancing technology in uh, tempe arizona which is very much baked into um the sort of um agency scene we've got a lot of students that graduate from the university that go to three-letter agencies um and so uh, when i graduated uh in 2010 i um i went out to to fort meade and did the whole interview process and got a conditional offer of acceptance with the national security agency uh for you know various reasons it ended up not working out and so i ended up actually just working at the university for about three years but the great thing about that was is it was was the most incredible playground right i mean you can think of you know, this university that has all these different, you know, uh, blade servers and uh, ESXi boxes and PBX systems and, you know, uh, Cisco uh, CCUX, like, you know, VoIP systems and all these different things. And so uh, naturally, right, a lot of the stuff gets set up, but it doesn't get secured very well. And so for three years, it was literally a playground for me to go and uh, test and to prod and to poke and to find, you know, different issues that were going on within the environment. And through my time there, I was able to find some pretty, pretty significant vulnerabilities, um, including uh, stuff that allowed, allowed you to read some backend information that, that should not have been uh, publicly accessible. So that's, uh, that's where I, I sort of came from as far as my college years uh, are concerned. Um, you know, growing up, I think I've always had an interest in, in security. I remember one of the first things that I ever, uh, I guess, would be considered hacked or manipulated was in, in the school, uh, in middle school, we had this thing called Accelerated Reader. And Accelerated Reader was this program where you had to read a book throughout the year or through the summer, and then you'd come back and you'd have to take these, you know, these different tests over the books. And, you know, like, uh, like anybody else, I, I had better things to do in my summer. Uh, and so what I did was, I think it was in the sixth or seventh grade, I ripped the accelerated reader program off of the school computer and took it home and installed it. And installing it allowed me to set the admin password and then take the tests uh, prior to going to school. Um, now, even though I did read the books in, you know, in very various spark note uh, capacities, 
um, you know, I, that was sort of like my first thing getting into some trouble with, with computers and, and learning basically just that interest of how this stuff worked. And a big part of, you know, pushing me forward was the gaming industry. I think we see a lot of different people getting involved in information security, but originally just being interested in gaming. And that's the way that I was, uh, you know, being able to tinker or modify specific, you know, uh, features or abilities within certain uh, games that I was playing was really what turned me on to, to getting uh, a further deeper understanding of how all this stuff connects together and how it works. Um, and so, so yeah, uh, you know, um, I've, I've been at PayPal for the past five years now. Um, like I said, I work on a various information security uh, incidents or issues for a long time. I was helping drive a lot of technical incidents. So I was basically a part of the team that is the escalation point for the security operations center. So if, you know, these guys in the SOC don't understand what's going on, then we'd come in and provide a technical expertise on what's going on. Um, and I focus a lot on, on money laundering and fraud. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's a, a little bit of background. Um, yeah. So that's where that's I awesome. should have come from. That's awesome. I really like the, the gamification of, of, of everything. Um, I, I remember reading this, like there was some article in American, uh, let's see, scientific America a few years ago, probably maybe 20 years ago. And they had this, this article about, um, you know, are all chess players that, you know, win these titles, uh, you know, the grandmasters, are they all geniuses? And, and they kind of came away with, there's more data that supports that they're not all geniuses. They just know more pattern sets and how to react to them faster than anybody else. And so I've kind of always felt like, you know, the, the strength in gamification and, you know, looking at things from a gaming perspective and can I win? Can I cheat it? Can I, you know, get these puzzle pieces to work has always been kind of in the back of my head. And um, it's nice to hear that you've got the same kind of how you were born into InfoSec with that mindset. Uh, Cause it kind of, it's going to help. It, it helps with, I'm sure with your investigations as well as your deconstruction and, and putting everything back together, you know? Yeah, and I think that, you know, a video game, you know, creates these sort of digital barriers, right? There are these sort of, these, these lines that you have to operate with inside. And once you realize that in many cases, and I, you know, not to get crazy philosophical here, I think the world is very much the same way. There are these, there are these boundaries that are put in front of us and, you know, the, the world or applications or security controls tell us that we operate inside of them. And I, I'm fascinated by the fact that those, in many cases, are just illusions of our, of our environment. And that through, you know, uh, depth and understanding and, you know, maybe a little um, divergent thinking, you're able to manipulate these processes or systems to do something in which they were not, you know, not otherwise intended to do. And that is something that I've just been hooked on for, for you know, the past 10, 15 years of my life, figuring out the way that these systems work together and how we can manip manipulate them or how criminals are manipulating them uh, to better better secure, you know, our platforms and protect our customers. Yeah, yeah, and then and then using the system of the criminals to manipulate them, you know. So absolutely, I love how everybody's origin story is always a video game they couldn't get past, or some you know school program that you didn't want to really do, or something like that. First job you couldn't log in, so you you, you bypass the thing, and everybody's got that origin story. Dude, yeah, I, I had a similar origin story when I really got hooked in. Um, we had this, you know, air quotes, computer science professor guy or, you know, computer science teacher at school. 
and he was just like we we all had just gotten windows 95 machines and so the only thing that was a password was like the screensaver you know and so um me and my friends we just put in like some you know background you know screensavers that were just fire you know and um we thought that was so cool and we put a password on it so like in the middle of class it would pop up and then he'd feel stupid you know we thought that'd be really funny well he got really mad about it and then put CMOS passwords on all the, you know, four or five machines. So we were like, man, like the teachers know it, where do the teachers keep this? And then we, then somebody read a 2600 article and, you know, okay, it's going to be a combination of, you know, somebody's name and a birth date and, you know, some, some theme. So we, we banged away about, at it for like three or four months and, and nothing. And then one of the guys, um, Eric, he was like, yeah, let's just switch the keyboards and turn the monitor off on, on the, uh, the, the keyboard that's connected to stuff and have a teacher come over and put the password in. We'll just have the, the direction go somewhere else. So he did that. It worked. We went to everyone in high school, gave everybody the password. Everybody in the password had the, the password. You got to have cover. Like the half year. Yeah. And, and, and we told everybody, like, look, don't tell. Like, if you have to. You still need to go ask for the password, but don't tell anybody we've got it. So this went on half the year until finally the, the very last class of the year. You know, Windows 95 locks up, it reboots, and I'm sitting there. The teacher's there, and my friend Brian is like, dude, put the password in. He's watching us. And I was like, all right, I'm going to put the password in. So I put the password in. Teacher goes bonkers. He's like, what? How'd you have this? He got all mad. And then, you know, basically none of the other teachers took this guy serious. And he's like, I'm sending you the principal's office. So I go to the principal's office and the principal was just like, yeah, so you guys had the password and you acted responsibly the whole year, didn't you? And I was like, yes, sir, we did. He's like, cool, man. Have a great summer. <laughs> all about perspective, man. Yeah, 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 it was, you know. We just didn't want the man to have us down, you know? Exactly. I talked to a former CISO of, uh, was it the Naval Research Center over here in TC, and and he'd gotten his security start that way. He he was originally hired by them to be an analyst, and back in the day, they were using old Spark systems, and, and he simply did a, you know, he said, like, you had to wait, like, a week for the network guys to come around and hook you up, so he's just sitting there being bored, and he was like, hell with this. <laughs> just physical bypass sets it up so when they show up he's already you know on the system and everything and and they were like we need you to come with us and that's how he got his start in computer security that's awesome i love it i you love know? it and it was like you said it was like a paperclip bypass it was a little you know poke the hole and it resets and you get in Mm -hmm. Totally. I remember. Uh, I remember being in high school. Um, them locking down command prompts because we thought it would be really funny to, to, uh, to you know, like net send people, uh, especially during, during uh, tests or whatever. Right? People would yeah. be net sending back and forth and sharing answers and stuff like that. And so uh, I remember they they had locked down the command prompt, and it, when you would launch it, it would be like, right, like this has been locked down by your systems administrator. Like you can't use it. We're like, oh God, you know, what do we do? So I went home and was poking around and looking at some different things. And I figured out that, you know, you could write this stuff in a notepad uh, file and, and save it as a dot bat and then just do the same thing. Right. And so it's like, there are these illusions of security that exist around us and how are, how can we manipulate them? 
you know, how can others manipulate them? It may be in the beginning, right? It's being nefarious, you know, uh, middle-aged teenagers, whatever it might be. But, you know, these skills really translate um, into real life situations as you, as you get older. And you see that, you know, there's criminals out here that are doing this stuff, um, but, you know, for, for financial gain or whatever it is. But those mindsets and that, that approach and lateral thinking is really what needs to be cultivated. That, those are the things that it's, it's very difficult to teach somebody. Right. You, you right, have to be right. self-starter. You have to be self-motivated and so passionate about this stuff to create and curate that. Um, and that is something that I think is lacking uh, as far as, you know, people that want to get into industry. They, they want to get into InfoSec because they want to make that paycheck. Right. Uh, but they don't have yeah. the same passion, that same drive as a lot of, you know, as, as a lot of us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's definitely like there's the, the, a great divide between, I would say, responsible rebellion and 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 kind of living in who you are versus the the infosec zealot guy who just wants to be right and just wants to burn scorched earth everywhere and you know get whatever the product of the day is and then you know have a badge you know like yep. it, it's sad but you know there's a lot more of that i mean we were talking today even in our our daily meeting about questioning whether we should even sponsor issa just because like like we can't even say anything without them being like oh that's marketing we're like we're not even marketing we're just here right like and it's like it's kind of weird because like that zealotry kind of gets pushed everywhere into an unhealthy space versus that you know hey let's let's learn how to be responsible rebellious type thinking in in this in this scenario because across the board assumptions are the thing that like they're the mother of all mess ups why don't we have it institutionalized of like, let's just question the assumptions, you know, call it red teaming, whatever we want to call it, but it's that in the end. Right. Yep. Yeah. But anyway, we were just uh, in Tokyo training a bunch of uh, Japanese CISOs. And that was actually one of the things on the, the checklist that we kept running them through in this big tabletop exercise we're running is what are the assumptions you made? And, are, you know, at this, this point in, in this scenario, is that still correct? Like, are, are you, you know, or did we, did we foul up back here somewhere, made some, you know, assumptions about what was going on that don't even make any sense based on the new info we have? Yeah. And that's a really hard thing for that culture too, right? I mean. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's super hard. And multiple points of validation, you know, I can't tell you how many times I'm doing an investigation. I've got some data and it, man, it looks good. Um, but I don't believe any data that's out there on the internet, much less the internal data, you know, that I leverage in my organization. And so it's really a, a, a continuous, right, um, sort of rethinking and restructuring of, of the assumptions that you're making. And, you know, just as you said, Dan, like, where does the data point to? And um, yeah. how believable is it? And, you know, I'm always always looking out for those people that are doing this sort of uh, counter intel. If, if I follow that breadcrumb, where does that lead me and what exposures do I have? And, you know, that goes into operational security concerns and a whole bunch of other things. But yeah, I think it's, I think that's, um, again, something that's very difficult to teach. And it, it um, yeah, it has yeah. to come from, from, you know, previous experiences and stuff. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that discipline in investigations of just keeping your mouth shut for the first five to 10 days, right? Like that's your first lesson. And then it's like, man, like, even if we had the best dossier in the world, it's got to be like, well, maybe we're 60% successful. And then, you know, what, what are all the artifacts that like correlate each fact? I mean, and 
man, I, I, I still make that same mistake where I want to go fast on something and I'm like, wait a minute. I just pivoted through a bunch of stuff is, is point A and B or those things correlated by any other data points, you know, like, and, and when I tell the story, you know, telling the story to like your wife or somebody who's not technical, they always have a bunch of questions and you're just like, Oh yeah, that was, I was a dumbass, you know? (laughs) You know, that's another great point about, you know, pivoting through some of this stuff super quick. I think, especially at a large organization, you know, I don't know if, if you guys had the same sort of experience, but sometimes stuff is going so quickly, right? There are so many different incidents. Once one, you know, drops off, another one pops up and, and, you know, it's constant and, you know, everybody wants an answer today or yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that sometimes makes it so that you don't have as much time to be able to validate your data points, to be as thorough, to have as much depth. And so in some cases that right can jeopardize your investigation. So I think that's also something that's really important for, for the investigators that are out there for, you know, uh, people that have a team of investigators, you need to give them enough time to be able to curate their data, to be able to understand it so that they have the story that they can come back and explain and also provide evidence as to why they've, you know, come to those conclusions. And if you've constantly got them jumping from one thing to the next, they're doing these context switches from digital investigations, to physical, you know, uh, physical uh, protection uh, related stuff or whatever it might be, these context switches sometimes don't allow your investigators to have as much depth in their investigations. Dan and I were just discussing this with a, about an IR related client where they wanted to have uh, status update phone calls every four hours. And we had to tell them like, look, you can't, you're not leaving enough window in there for anybody to move the ball forward. And, right. then, and then they were having the same problem where they, they wanted to jump from one target to the next target to the next target. And it's like, we really need to, to just work our way down the list methodically and, and work our way through things because that's, that's what's going to get us to the goal we want at the end. But, but that's, that's, that's a difficult mindset for people. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about it just a little differently the last year is just those CISOs are the the people that you need to be pushing that information up to. Like we're, we're not the heroes in that story, even though we feel like it and we're kind of put in that position, we're the, just the guides to help them manage the risk and make those decisions. And and that sometimes, you know, I think it's easy to just jump over the line and be like, yeah, I'm going to be the hero for you today. And here's this APT group and it's super crazy China and you're totally owned. And I feel good for telling you that because I saw it, you know, and it's like, all right, so how do we fit it into maybe that guy needs to tell that story to the board. He needs to tell it to the lawyers. Like let's, let's isolate it down. Let's give them a, a, you know, something that can be manageable over the short term and the long term. And it has nothing to do with all the obscure details. It's just, Here's your high level, you know, like I want to be a guide. Uh, your ego kind of dies a little more, but you know, yeah. the technical side, right? Yeah. And for me, it's about being a storyteller, right? I, I take these investigations or I take these incidents and I create and I, and I have a story that comes out of them through the data points that I'm collecting. And so I think that that for me, you know, when I go and present to my CISO or whoever else it might be within the organization, uh, it's about, Hey, right. This is the incident. 
uh, here are the data points that we collected and here's what we found. And it's really that step-by-step, -step, you know, it's, it's a storytelling process. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's uh, it's something else that's really important. You have to have really great writing skills and you have to be able to be a storyteller to describe what is happening uh, and in layman's terms, right? You can be the most technical person in the room um, and in many cases, that's not going to get you uh, in the in the front of the right people to be able to tell these stories. And if you can't get up and articulate what's going on in a calm, you know, concise manner, because I mean, think about it. Some of these guys, the amount of money that they're making five, 10, 20 minutes in a room with you, you're talking uh, quite a bit of money. So, you, you know, you're given a very short window of time to talk and you better, you know, get it done pretty quickly. Right. And I guess I want to just encourage some of the younger guys, too, that like this is a progression. You know, you're going to come to these conclusions. You're going to have these experiences and, and, and messing up is okay on, you know, telling the story the wrong way or getting too technical. Um, Cause it happens. It's happened to all of us a million times, yeah. you know, like, um, but like what you're saying, that new discipline of storytelling, I think that, you know, we, we were talking to, Matt Zach DeVoe, Payton. yeah, Matt DeVoe Zach, last week and Zach Payton the week before. And, I mean, you know, Zach, yeah. Zach, Zach, they've got story mode built into their Westward AI program. It's literally called story mode. Right. Like, and, and I mean, I've been doing a lot of research on some stuff. I don't want to like, I can't say like what, what it's with, but it is along those lines of like stories and, and whatnot. Um, just like, just, it's so powerful you know, the story and, and, and isolating down the facts that, that somebody needs to know because we just have to be aware that like, they're only going to take away two or three facts. Like if we get past two or three facts, it's just like, you know, going to, you know, church or something. Does the, does the preacher ever have anything more than three bullet points? No. Right. And being able to understand your audience as well, right? Understand your audience, understand the content that you're delivering but I think also, you know, going back, uh, Dan, to what you were saying about, like, we've all gotten it wrong. Man, it's, it's embarrassing to get certain facts wrong. It's embarrassing to be able to deliver, you know, that information and be very confident and, and be wrong. But something my father always taught me was, you know, integrity is about, um, you know, do, doing, the, doing the right thing when nobody's watching. But it, it's integrity um, is about uh, how you act, not when things are going good, but when things are going bad and how you handle yourself. And one of the most critical things that I think uh, in this industry is having a, a positive reputation, a reputation of integrity. You know, when you come across a fact or you, you create this, you know, particular part of the story and it might be uh, mischaracterized or whatever, um, and, and you realize that that has been done, then, then you need to come clean and you need to be open and honest. And instead of being embarrassed by that, use that as an opportunity to humble yourself and to realize that, hey, right, like this is, this is a part of the game and uh, don't feel bad about it, but make sure that you address it, that you move on, you don't, you know, let it get you down because we've all been there and uh, it's, uh, it's interesting sometimes. Yeah, well, Blake, I, I mean, I think that was one of the first things when I met you, I was like, man, this is awesome because that, that integrity came across in questions and, you know, in dialogue across the board where, you know, we didn't have to agree on everything, but, you know, it just created this atmosphere of more, you know, conversation, more dialogue and, and really that deeper relationship, which is sometimes harder when the guy is just like, oh, it's just going to be drive by truth hour. See ya, you know? Right. 
It's, uh, I had a uh, instance where uh, working with uh, the Velexity guys, Michael Lay, and we were reviewing some some RAM, and he'd actually pointed out to me maybe six, seven days earlier, like, oh, you should probably take a look at this thing. And we were hunting down some fileless malware stuff, and, and uh, it took me six days <laughs> to get back around to look at that and go, oh, he tagged that for me. It was right there the whole time, just like in my face, on the screen, the whole time as I ran all over the place and, uh, you know, didn't follow the breadcrumb. Yeah. You hate it, but you, it happens, right? You're looking it could have been worse. Of- you could be a year and a half into an investigation. <laughs> yeah. like, that's happened before. Like, Whoa, wow. What's this cupcake <laughs> recipe thing? <laughs> um uh i'm gonna shift here just a little bit uh one of the cool things i liked about um some of the work that you've done blake is the intel ctf can you share kind of like what were the roots in that what got you into that gamification of things like uh you and kev and you know like the whole deal yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Intelligent CTF uh, is a basically a narrative-based scenario where we take data points and we seed them across the internet. Um, and right, these could be uh, domain registrations, monikers on specific forums or websites or whatever it might be, seeding of phone numbers or you know just really whatever data points are relevant irrelevant to the narrative that we're that we're describing. And so a lot of that was baked in, you know, I created that in uh, 2015 and uh, we, that was our first DEF CON event um, that, that we did. So we um, went down to DEF CON and ran it and had a number of people play and it was a really great time. But that all was born out of, man, this like passion for open source intelligence. And I think what I found was, is in many cases, you know, I, I've got internal data sets that I can leverage for various you know, parts of my investigation. But what I found was is that there was probably 80 to 90% coverage uh, with this, on the same data that was externally available. Um, and so I really wanted to create these games for people where we could craft a narrative around an incident that happened. If it's a website breach, if it was you know, a company that was broken into, if it was whatever, and really teach people how to pivot off of certain data points what resources out there could help them, you know, push them through their investigative investigative process to connect that next data point and show people how like, hey, this is, you know, when I think when I was in college, you know, a couple of my classes were like applied exploits and hacking and, uh, you know, like reverse engineering and, and all this other stuff. And I never knew that, that there was like these open source intelligence digital investigators that were out there doing like all this different stuff, you know, and I, I don't even know of a curriculum right now at, at school um, where, where they're teaching like open source intelligence specifically. And so really seeing that there was a need in the space to teach people about open source intelligence techniques. And yeah, there's a lot of great blog posts. There's a lot of great stuff out there. I um, mean, resources, but, but basically creating a game to put people into a scenario where they can apply some skills that they've learned, but also, like, I don't know about you guys, I, I know, uh, you know, you probably have played CTFs before, like Capture the Flag events. I've played a whole bunch, you know, hundreds and hundreds over the years uh, that, that I've been around. Um, and in many cases, you know, they're Jeopardy style. And, man, you get to that reverse engineering, whatever you need to set, you know, whatever specific 
parameter up and this thing and you don't know how to do it, it's game over for you. You know, there's no educational process baked in. And so what yeah. Kevin and I have done uh, and, and our, our colleague Alex as well is we've created this process where as you're going through this narrative sort of experience, uh, if you get stuck up on something for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, you know, there's this sort of seamless integrative process that helps educate you, to teach you, to put you down the right track because we want, we want to educate people. It's not just about doing that CTF to see how much do you know. It's, well, what do you not know? And how can we further, you know, develop your skill set to make you a better investigator? So I think yeah. that's where a lot of it was birthed from. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, the, the success on that's been awesome over the years. Um, I know that there's another OSN type CTF thing at DEF CON as well, but this is entirely different for those that haven't done it. Um, this is a great thing. You know, like we, I, I've run everybody on our team through it and um, it's been really good. You know, we're going to try to push the same kind of style out um, through Shadow Dragon. You know, we, we've already pushed some stuff out and um, just waiting for a little bit more uh, traction on that. But so far, everybody who's done it so far has really loved it and enjoyed that. I think you did a great job on that, you know. Oh, thanks. And I think the other really cool thing is, is not only does it do digital, you know, do we do uh, digital investigative narratives, but I think also the physical components. So, right, this this past year we did uh, uh, an event at DEF CON uh, this, this previous uh, year. And um, we basically did it to where, you know, there was 10 or 12 physical, or uh, excuse me, 10 or 12 digital flags where, you know, you're investigating this person, you've got a moniker, you find a Twitter account, you find a domain, you find some PGP keys, you find, you know, some whatever else. But then it goes from doing this sort of digital investigation to realizing, hey, you know, your target is actually physically at DEF CON. And, mm -hmm. you know, here, here's where they're located. We have the back of what their shirt looks like. And so now you need to go and tell your target, right? And now you need to go and, and collect something, uh, you know, from a specific part of the hotel, or you have to, you know, stand by that payphone and be uh, aware enough to, to pick it up if it rings, right? And it's really about trying to get people in the mindset of, are you paying attention to your environment? Because there's a lot more going on around you than you might, than you might think is going on. And so creating yeah. opportunities for people to, again, develop, curate that divergent thinking so that they can bring that back uh, when they're doing their investigations. Um, I, you know, I think that that is something that, that nobody else is doing and that we do an extremely good job at. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, I, I liked the, the parallelism of what you guys were doing and then what we were doing kind of like philosophically trying to push some of the, the I guess the, the investigative teams that kind of like are the tip of the spear um, that need to kind of keep integrating the investigative side and that physical side, the, the, those two shared domains of, you know, getting up out of your seat and engaging, you know, like we've been pushing that a little bit with some of our customers. And I think that's the next horizon of just, you know, if things happen and the EU, you know, crumbles, you know, you're going to have a lot of these states that just don't have a shared force, you know, um, amongst the EU. And there's going to be a lot of small teams that are going to be operating independently and they're going to have to have to be balancing those two worlds, you know, the physical world and, and the cyber world and, and get a little bit better at, on the joining of those things, you know. Can, can I come back around to something else you mentioned, yeah, yeah. Like, which is, uh, and Dan, you and I have talked about this a lot of times, but uh, it actually came up with one of my investors this week, that the education they're receiving 
at various colleges and universities related to cybersecurity in the you know in the past five ten years is just not answering the the, the business needs and the day the, the daily grind of this job out sort of needs that people have um and, and one of my investigators brought this up this weekend that you know he's got a master's in cybersecurity from a good university and he's like i don't i don't feel like this prepared me for anything it's like uh, but i'd like to get your thoughts on that yeah no i i think that um i think that the curriculum and programs need to catch up to where the industry is at and the problem is is that many people who are teaching cybersecurity at these universities um are doing so right out of college or doing so you know maybe with a couple years of experience at a small organization and they don't go spend you know 15 20 years or whatever it might be and, and sure you, you do have some people um that that have done this i think russ rogers as far as uh you know one, one of my teachers uh russ rogers worked yeah, at the yeah. university of Houston technology super baked into to black hat and the defcon scene and is really well known um and uh you know I think that the content that is being used is is to satisfy um, sort of like an educational requirement. And it's not teaching people the skills that they necessarily need to be successful in the industry. And don't get me wrong, you know, don't don't blanket this over everything, but everybody that goes to college that's in like InfoSec, they all want to be pen testers. They all want right. to be a red team. They all want to be uh, doing all this crazy stuff. And in many cases, like that's not what a lot of these organizations need. I keep There's saying that, that, that everybody, you know, everybody focuses on the red, but all the jobs and all the requirements are on the blue side. Absolutely. And, there, and there's a time and a place for both, right? So I'm fortunate enough to, to be in the position at the organization where I do get to be um, a part of some red team initiatives and provide some expertise or, um, you know, uh, approaches in certain scenarios, whatever it might be. Um, but I think that there's a whole bunch of skills that are not being taught that need to be related to just um, bringing, bringing the use cases back to business need. Because I can find something super cool. I can be doing all this reverse engineering and all these rock gadgets and V-table overrides and all this different stuff. But at the end of the day, like, when you go into an organization, you're doing a pen test, you know, for, for a financial institution or whatever it is, in many cases, you're not going to be writing stuff like that on your own, uh, off to the side. You're going to be using off-the-shelf stuff. You're going to be looking for misconfigurations. You're going to be looking for ways to leverage something, uh, you know, some um, trust relationship that, that was not otherwise, you know, uh, solidified or that somebody knew about. And it's those sort of subtle manipulations and less on, well, I'm going to hack the planet, bro. Right. And so um, I think that the, the mindset needs to shift a little bit. Yeah. I, I, th I mean, there's, there's definitely some grandiose there um, in that just desire for the pen test stuff. I mean, I grew up in, you know, the Unix world and the networking and, and, you know, I was pushing towards the pen testing stuff early, early on, but it wasn't even a paid gig yet, you know? And, you know, luckily when, when the industry got to it, you know, like it, the timing was perfect, but um, I don't think I've ever, when, when doing pen test, I probably used a zero day, maybe two or three times, you know, like 
or even an exploit for that matter. Like most of the time, it's just, you know, read, write, execute. I need to get that and get those puzzle pieces together in, in some weird or trust the relationship. The feature, Dan, that's not a, that's not a bug, man. That's a feature. They yeah, added. Yeah. The- yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And, and too, I, I always enjoyed, like I, I took a lot of time and this is where the, the bridge over to, you know, investigations and OSINT really was a bridge for me. was just like mapping out the ego. I always wanted to map out, I always mapped out the ego because then I could anticipate that how much, you know, that sysadmin, like his style and demeanor and where he was going to make the next, you know, call where he's going to post things or what the next host might look like or, you know, common things he might do. And that was just because I had this huge background in doing enterprise, you know, Unix support and sysadmin admin and all that. And, um, the red teaming was just overlaid over that versus, you know, it was overlaid over all this other knowledge. So I kind of wrapping this back up to like academia and, and their role. I I do think that there's a a bigger shift that needs to happen in how academic programs are structured, you know, like that current academic structure in, you know, high level education and in, lower level education, I don't think it really works. You know, like I've, I, I kind of think that the classical education is better. Um, but that's a whole nother topic. But I, I, I think that there's, you know, there's still room in, in the industry and time for, for those type of things to start changing. I, I'm not the guy for that, you know. And I think a lot of the technical skills have, have over the years through the immense amount of tooling and stuff that's out there, the, the, the technical requirements have sort of, and the understanding has been abstracted, right? It's like, I've got my, my tool over here and it does X, uh, but uh-oh, it broke today or uh-oh, uh, my upgrade didn't happen or you know whatever it might be. And crap, I don't know like how this actually works under the covers. And Kevin, yeah, yeah. Kevin, Kevin has been an ins- instrumental part of my life on, on, you know, teaching me about, you know, like, let's get at the root of this. Let's get down to the super fundamentals, like on the wire, like, let's, how does this all connect together? Because if that tooling that you use goes away, can you rewrite it, right? Can you do it mm-hmm. on your own? Do you have that foundational understanding um, to, to allow you to continue your approach and your process. And I feel like in many cases, universities are teaching people how to use, you know, Metasploit, for example, or any. I just think of that. That's the Metasploit qualification of, of the whole industry. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, if, you know, before, um, uh, before pattern offset, right, for, for uh, writing exploits, like binary tree analysis, like what were people doing before pattern offset came around? Like, you had to, uh, you know, systematically break your stuff down and do it by hand. And so I think that that's another critical thing that, that is further being abstracted from students today and that needs to be sort of revisited. Well, that and, and going through whole programs with, with just no, no programming background. Yeah, right. that's a, that's a how weird does, How does that happen? How do you, you know, if, if you don't know how any of this stuff works, how, how are you supposed to know what to do when it breaks? Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, um, so kind of, I want to shift the, the topic uh, over to uh, the topic at hand, which is hack back or long-term investigations. Blake, what are your thoughts, experiences on any of those things? Um, 
accurate. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I know that, you know, for a while people have been talking about hacking back or, you know, ways to, um, to do more interesting things in the space when it, when it's necessary or when you're chartered to do so. Um, I think it, it really, you know, so, so for me, in my personal experience at the organization that I work at, you know, clearly a uh, hacking back for a financial institution is, is not within our charter, not something that we are privy to do uh, and, and has serious uh, legal implications. Um, but with that, you know, I believe and, and have come up with this idea that uh, instead of hacking back, what about active defense technologies? And what I mean by active defense is, you know, let's take a credential stuffing attack, for example. Blocking IPs uh, doesn't work. Um, it, it works to a degree, but depending on your, you know, rate limiting policies and, and a number of other components to your security uh, architecture, um, you know, th those, those might go out the window. And so from an active defense perspective, let's say, you know, there's a bit of crimeware out there that is leveraging a super old version of a, a particular browser or whatever it is, let's say. Well, what happens uh, if, um, you know, I load a bit of JavaScript into that browser and unfortunately, uh, you know, that browser is just super out of date and man, it can't handle the way this JavaScript is calling, you know, itself or, or whatever it might be. And maybe that creates max CPU utilization on the endpoint. Now, any other user, right, in the environment or any other user that might be interacting with the platform, if they're running an up-to-date version, you know, uh, you know, within the past 15 or 20 versions, the JavaScript that's loaded into the browser is not going to do anything to them. It will be just like any normal JavaScript. It won't create any more overhead. But bits of crimeware that's out there specifically use typically older bits of software. And so with that, I don't know, what if we were just to happen to arbitrarily load this into every single user session? And like, I mean, it's not my fault if your browser can't handle it, you know, right? And so uh, I think being a little bit more creative in that way um, is something that the industry needs to do. And I think that that's something that our organization in particular is interested in pursuing a little bit more. We've got some research initiatives around this. But as far as hacking back, you know, if you were a part of a team that is chartered to do so, um, and you know you have the legal authority to do so. Um, then um, you know I think I think that that is definitely a tool within your toolbox that that should be utilized, especially in high risk scenarios that require quick turnaround or require visibility that would otherwise not be um, you would not be able to get. Um, and so I'm of the opinion that it is is something that needs to be used sparingly. That needs to have multiple points of uh, vetting and validation and support from, you know, whoever is, is authorizing this activity. You know, I think that in many cases, the concern about hacking back is that, well, if you do it in this scenario, then what's the threshold to allow that sort of activity? And I think that that is the discussion that needs to be had more than sort of, oh, well, is hacking back right or wrong, right? Well, you know, uh, it, it depends. And I think that in many cases, a lot of people are very concerned that if you do allow that sort of capability to happen, uh, are the right checks and balances in place to ensure that it's not being abused? Yeah, no, I think those are good words. Brian, what are, what are some of your, your thoughts on this? Because, I mean, this even came up last week with a client. Right, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I thought this was a, like a, a done and over thing. And then I was up at the, uh, 
the Columbia University, uh, was it uh, Law and Cyber Warfare Conference, and they had a panel of, of uh, military attorneys on, and they had brought up that, you know, this uh, Representative Tom Graves from Georgia had uh, introduced this bill again, you know, and, and, and basically they were, they were blasting it going, this is, this is a terrible idea. You know, there's, there's government military organizations that have the, the mandate, the charter for this. It's done under controlled supervised programs. You know, if we just have everybody that thinks they've, they've identified the bad guy doing this, we're just going to have utter chaos, uh, mm-hmm. which is it was where I, I tend to be with that too, is, is, you know, um, <laughs> unfortunately, I guess for the nature of, of what we do, you know, at, at the company is I, I see a lot of, of uh, organizations that, you know, I would not under any circumstances want to see them hacking back at anybody because, it, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have a great understanding of their own network. They certainly don't have understanding what's going on in other people's and, and, you know, attribution and things like that, just not something they're, you know, capable of doing. And if you, you, put a loaded gun in their hands you know who, who knows where they're pointing that thing at yeah and yeah, i would what's the next step too right like what's what's the next step okay so so you hack back you let's say you're confident that that's your your target that carried out whatever activity and you pop uh you know something that's related to them um then what what's the intention of hacking back what are you what are you going to do are you gonna, right you know, yeah, yeah. What, what data are you going to now you have to exfiltrate data now there's a lot of touch points related to you know your engagement with this target um that that could come back and uh, again if this is not in your charter and you're not authorized to do that then there are serious legal implications so i am totally you know of the opinion that unless you are you know working in those positions that you are allowed to do this um, if you are not, then you should stay very far away of, of even considering that sort of activity. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree. And I think the sentiment of the hackback is probably more rooted in the fact that like law enforcement is failing in providing the law enforcement needs to those that have been compromised. You know, so, I mean, I know over the years, right? So what? That data. Like you've got that data now, you hack back, you got that data. What, what you gonna you gonna give that to LE as part of their discovery? Like, no, totally. I went and like popped them here and I use this here and I actually <laughs> oh, okay. So now you're gonna get your whole case thrown out anyways. Like you can't even do that. So then what's your yeah, what, yeah. because it, it becomes vigilantism, right? Exactly. Yeah, I can't right, just, but okay, I'll so I'll just let's throw the devil's advocate in here, you know, like where does you know uh, castle doctrine start on you know individuals um, or small LLCs and C corps and all that. Like how where does that fall into in the digital space? You know, like you you had a huge occurrence. You had many different occurrences over the last twenty years of, of of this kind of stuff happening. And you know, like Sony was a good example. You know, like you had state sponsored dudes pissed off about something in a movie. And they obliviate um, a, a U.S. corporation. Now, luckily, that U.S. corporation didn't hack back, but it did seem like there was a military response. You know? Um, yeah, I, I would say you can't really draw a parallel between Castle Doctrine law and 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 hacking by a cyber attack. And, and here's my reasoning yeah. why: is if somebody's pointing a gun at me, I I don't. You know, pretty much anybody can determine that 
who's at the other end of the gun, right? And and uh, right, right. and they know that it's an obvious threat to them. And and somebody walking by would also be like, oh my god, that's you know an obvious threat, and I can see who who's pointing the gun. You you just don't have that in in that cyber realm, right? That's yeah. that's that's the problem. Is you know, and you've probably had this. I've had you know customers that are kind of unaware going. Oh well, Microsoft is hacking us. I'm like, I really don't. <laughs> you know, Amazon is hacking us. It's like, no, no, no. There's somebody's got an instance, and it's being used against you. And you know, calm down. You know, but but you've heard that, right? You've heard that come out of people's mouths. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's my fear. Yeah, I've also seen people be like, Hey, I've got their IP address, and I geolocated it to the street address, and well, there they are. And I'm like, oh my God, you, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about how any of this stuff works. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think it's very difficult also, yeah, to, to, to support, you know, um, to support that. I, I think that there is very, it's very, very difficult to equate the, you know, Castle Doctrine sort of example to, to this scenario. And while, you know, somebody is in your environment, um, in, in many cases, you know, you want to maintain visibility. Mm -hmm. Right. You want to maintain visibility to get a better understanding of your target, what they're doing, what their intentions are, what their capabilities are. Um, and so in those cases, yeah, like play with them. If they're inside of your environment, like set up some stuff and point them to that direction and, and you know, create hell for them, create as much uh, tar. Uh, the tar pits uh, and the honey boxes yeah. are awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, it, but as far as, you know, hacking back or anything like that, um, again, for, for most organizations, for, you know, for the 99% that are out there, you know, I think I, I would highly uh, advise not doing any, yeah. anything yeah. In, in that sort of capacity. Well, and I guess like what I'm trying to say is I feel like when people say it should be hacked back, they're really saying, I feel like law enforcement isn't working for me. I feel like I don't know really where to turn to. And I'm also confusing hack back and long-term investigation for some type of attribution that may have other strategic bullet points that you could follow up on, you know? So and I can um, totally agree with you there. Those they are, really want is they want to know who's doing this to me. Right. They want to know how can we change our business? Like what, what, what does this really mean for us long-term? And, you know, how can we get a little bit more visibility than mysterious ransomware bad guys, right? Like, even though they're saying, we want to hack back and blow them up. It's like, okay, let's just, you're a business. <laughs> let's be sober about this. You're angry, all right? We're, you're going to be in denial here pretty soon <laughs> and grieving about the costs of the incident. <laughs> There's other things that are going to happen. But um, anyway, that's kind of where I kind of feel like this is what they're really saying, even though they're saying this other thing, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. But um, can you can you share with some of the folks some of your successes in long-term investigations and and strategic, having strategic outcomes for things maybe, you know, for, for, what you guys are doing or any, any place that you've observed over the years, even working, if you guys have worked with law enforcement or not. Yeah. Um, so you, you just uh, specifically about the organization that I work at and some like investigations that I've been a part of and how that's sort of 
helped the organization? Is well, like I mean, I'm just trying to contrast hack back versus long term investigations, and maybe and maybe um, taking action like not not action against the the actor where you know you you get them arrested, but like you get enough things hand built up and handed over, which may actually change things in a larger picture sense versus a hack back, you know, like does, right. have, have you seen taking out a few actors reduce fraud because you disrupted a, an ecosystem of, of toolage or um, capability within the, the, you know, the crimeware market spot place and stuff like yeah. that, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. And I think that, you know, in, in many cases, right, like your security operations center uh, is not going to be doing these long-term investigations, right? The security operations center is there to uh, squash fires, to put them out, uh, to drive the incidents forward, to engage the right, uh, you know, the teammates and partners within the organization to, to remediate whatever incident occurred. Um, your more tactical teams, uh, like, you know, the teams that I'm a part of, uh, might take a little bit more time in looking at, you know, who carried out that DDoS attack or, hey, that big credential stuffing attack, like, what does that go back to? Um, and, and in those sort of tactical scenarios, being able to collect as much information about the incident as possible, um, but really, you know, you're going to get this grip of noise that happens during your incident. And it's really trying to get back to that very beginning spot, right when it began. What was the incident or the the thing that they messed up right there at the beginning that puts you onto their trail um and, and you know in the case of credential stuffing because i think you know it's a it's an industry-wide problem you know in many cases you go and look at these criminal toolkits that are out there to to automate you know sort of the, the smashing of credentials against endpoints uh, against various platforms um a lot of these guys that are doing this stuff they made one request they copied that request they randomize certain features and values. Um, and if you go back to when that, you know, that first signature of that request emerged, uh, you might find a test account, right? Or you might even find their personal account. Or you might find attributes about the device that carried out that request that could be you know, instrumental in you being able to, to pivot off and identify you know, whatever it is that you're looking for. Um, and that's where, you know, in some of these cases, you get an email address, you get a MAC address, you get a phone number, you get whatever, that's where you need tooling that allows you to have a consistent monitoring platform. And then, you know, you, the tooling that, that your organization provides is, is critical in being able to do exactly that, is to get visibility into, into uh, data points that are interesting to you, um, especially over a long period of time. And the collection of these data points, and I think also, you know, industry collaboration is huge. I know we all have things that are TLP red or TLB rainbow sprinkles or whatever you want to call it that you don't want to talk to anybody about. But there is definitely a necessity to leverage industry partners to be able to drive some of these investigations forward and then figuring out a way that, you know, you can back your way into some of that data or leverage that data and then work with LE to, to maybe it's attribution, right? Or maybe it's to, to figure out what that endpoint, you know, what's on that endpoint to get a better understanding of where your adversary is coming from or whatever it might be. So there's definitely been investigations that we've run, uh, long-term investigations that have been, you know, two and a half years where, you know, trying to identify the uh, targets related to you know, money laundering or whatever it might be, um, that through, through our investigative process that, again, have taken years in some cases, uh, and the attribution, you know, uh, and these people being uh, extradited has, has 
significantly impacted sort of the fraud scene or fraud as a service in, in some cases um, against various financial organizations. Wow. Can, can you share any quantification of like how much that fraud impact was after disruption? Uh, in so in some cases, it's been the complete, you know, eradication of, of some of these uh, money laundering um, uh, services, right, that are, that are out there. I think something else that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, not a lot of people think about the operational costs around incidents. And what I mean by that is like, you know, let's say hypothetically, there's an adversary who is really into, again, let's use the credential stuffing example. Um, really into credential stuffing and has been uh, taking credentials from across the internet from all these different leaks and smashing them against your organization. And maybe they've um, introduced these illicit requests organically, right, in, into the environment. Well, over time, um, depending on how many of those requests are illegitimate, uh, your operational operations teams have to have the capacity to be able to support the login events related to those endpoints. And so in some cases, and I'm not going to go into, you know, too, too uh, deep detail, but, you know, in some cases, the attribution of, of the individuals behind some of these very large um, services that are out there have seen, we've seen drastic reduction in the uh, abuse against certain endpoints. And that also reduces the operational cost that is required to run those endpoints because the organization might say, hey, there's just a lot more people logging in, you know, or there just might be, um, you know, uh, just uh, a little bit more traffic because it's the end of the year, right? It's, it's around December and there's a lot of people, you know, uh, on the Steam sale or whatever. And criminals know that this is a great opportunity to introduce illicit traffic into the platform. Um, but but bringing it back, you know, the operational costs, you know, attribution is cool and sexy and all that stuff, but there's even a monetary amount that, hey, you know, your app pools needed 50% capacity because you just took out that, you know, that adversary that was creating, you know, that, that sort of crimeware as a service uh, that was supporting the rest of the industry. So I think that that's something that not a lot of people think about, and that's important to, to mention. Yeah, So so basically, I mean, you, you have a good amount of data on the fact that like being strategic in your investigations outside of just the incident is much more advantageous to the operational costs of, of the organization. Um, you know, the, the cost of cutting out different, you know, criminal networks that like lowers things and that's not hack back, but it kind of sounds like it if I'm not super technical, you know, like, what did your mom just hear? You know, like, oh, you just hacked them back and you got them arrested. And it's like, well, or you just did an awesome investigation, you know? Yeah, no, there are certain touch points, uh, you know, and in, in data exposures that can be leveraged that provide you sort of the same visibility. I mean, maybe in some of these cases, uh, you know, and again, if it's in your charter, uh, maybe uh, actor engagement is important. Maybe you develop a three month, six month relationship with this target or that group or whatever it might be and uh you start playing the game right is that hacking back no i'm just having a conversation with somebody right, right. um but what yeah. sort of visibility does that conversation give you and then maybe the data that was collected or whatever it is that you might maybe interested in you know all these guys and dan you know this better than i all these guys love to brag and they love yeah. to show everybody yeah. how cool they are and the coolest thing that they just did 
And uh, in many cases, you might be able to get the same information by just maybe a little bit of uh, human intelligence. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've been pushing that, that kind of dialogue thing for, for many years. And it's been, I, I always thought it would be like kind of successful. And then when you're doing it, it's really successful. You know, like people join nowadays over just shared topics and then you just keep pinging them over, uh, over a certain course of time. And I mean, typically what I've seen is like you get like 90% success or more if you, you're just patient on that gameplay, you know, um, and then, you know, push them something that's going to reveal something about either fingerprinting their device or getting, getting more geographical location on them. Um, it really helps, you know, like, a, and it helps in where weird places where it's not just, you know, the cyber domain, it's kind of the physical domain as well, you know, so. And, and chatting with people and sending somebody a, an email and social engineering them, none of that is illegal. None of that is off the table. None of that is, you know, and it could very much be higher risk. And I'm not a lawyer, so go talk with your own, you know, sort of legal department or whatever. But in many cases, right, it, it might be high risk, but it's definitely not anything that, that is like a hack back as far as, you know, legality is concerned. Um, so, so yeah, I think that there's a lot of capabilities that people could utilize that they maybe are, aren't comfortable with. And that's why having a mature team and, uh, right, right. yeah, individuals that can help support sort of the, these notions and, and leveraging them when, when high risk situations go down. Yeah. Have you seen, can you share anything if you guys have had any, um, you know, high risk situations with violence or anything like that? Cause that's you know, we've seen that kind of be the theme over the last nine to 12 months with the merging of corporate security teams and the cyber, you know, kind of the, the deeper investigative teams kind of merging together because they've got risks online and physical things. Like, have you experienced anything of success or anything in that realm? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mentioned OI monitor previously uh, with being instrumental in being able to gain visibility and consistent visibility into, you know, a target that you might be tracking. Right. Uh, but in, in regard to physical, you know, acts of violence, um, you know, the, the, again, the capability that your, your organization provides, Dan, uh, Spotter, right, is, is a great tool. Um, and has been used, uh, you know, to to help facilitate, you know, identification of you know, adversaries in particular, physical security scenarios. And right, the corporate security team. I mean, these guys are the guys that are, you know, uh, have a team of physical people that are sitting at the front door, right? That might have a firearm or might not. That are watching the cameras and all that stuff. These are not cyber intel, you know, go and hunt down your targets sort of people. I mean, they might be able to use LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter like anybody else, but they don't have the same sort of capability or mindset or even approach to how you might get some of this stuff done. So right. uh, there have definitely been incidents that have happened at the organization where, you know, uh, adversarial engagement was critical, especially when it came to physical acts of violence. It was critical in being able to, um, I believe in, in many cases, to save people's lives. And I think the tooling and stuff that your organization provides allows you to do that. Uh, well, I, I w yeah, thank you. Um, I wasn't trying to get our, <laughs> our tools plugged there. Um, but I, I was, I mean, what are some of the things for, for some of the analysts out there that like when you're going through that investigation, 
um, when it's really stressful, you know, there, there's that physical threat side of things. Um, what were some of the things that you did just as a methodical process that just from within your workflow that helped you stay focused, stayed on target and, and didn't get, you know, lost in the weeds when you've got a time crunch on, you know, threats coming in online that need to be countered and, you know, some level of information shared with execs and, and corporate security teams like what, what what was your mindset what was your experience in that and kind of what were some gems that you could give to some of the some of the other investigators out there of that you learned from that process so you need to have a very specific end goal right the, during your physical incidents uh, you know it's probably a target right that's that's making posts or sending emails or doing whatever it might be. And I think making sure that you have a very clear um, end game of what you are looking to accomplish, what sort of visibility that you're looking to acquire. Um, and then, you know, so, so without getting too crazy into the details, I think establishing your persona and the backstory of your persona is important. Mm -hmm. uh, writing all of this down and, and having sort of your narrative written out so that you can stick to the script. Um, and that might be around what time you log in and log off, right? That might be yeah. uh, the type of um, verbiage that you use. Uh, maybe, you know, um, that might be uh, the things that you're interested in and ensuring that you're cataloging uh, this information. So, right, you should be cataloging your target's information, your adversary's information, but you should also be uh, cataloging uh, your persona's information that, that you are using. And as you're doing your engagements, um, right, you, of course, need to leverage things that maybe your persona and your target are mutually interested in um, that can be leveraged um, to, to provide further visibility into whatever it is that you might be interested in. But I think, you know, you need to have a start and an end date. You need to be able to have a, an appropriate co a data collection process and especially like the time frame, you know, if your normal job, let's say, is from nine to five, uh, and that is when you've got to get, you know, run of the business sort of stuff done, maybe your persona is in a different time zone, right? And maybe that gives you the opportunity to, well, yeah, maybe I can work on some of this stuff because it is related to work, obviously, you know, during the, during the day, but we, we've got other stuff coming through the pipeline. Well, because I've established a time frame that is outside of the normal operating hours that we work in, this gives me the opportunity and it frees me up to maybe at nighttime, right, do a little bit more of engagement or whatever it might be. And everybody has to figure out what works for them. But, you know, as far as being able to keep on track and keep a consistent engagement with your adversary, separating sort of hashtag day job and oh, spooky, you know, tactical investigation, mm -hmm. that for me is, has been really helpful uh, in, in uh, not sort of uh, overlapping the two. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Brian, what, what are some of your, your life lessons in that realm? I mean, uh, geez. some of those, uh, well, well, do I get, do I get to plug OI monitor again? 
You can end. I feel like I should. I I was being legit. I wasn't trying to talk. (laughs) No, no. Yeah, Yeah, no, like plug it, OI monitor, spotter, whatever. I mean, like this. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's a super useful tool, right? You just, you you plug in your criteria, you you refine it a little bit, and boom, real-time intel popping up in your face. Um, You know, what's not to love? Um, (sighs) There's so many funny stories we could put there. Yeah, yeah, there there are. But, um, God, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, get, I get all like crazy philosophical about this and, and, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm always going to revert to like the timeline, the timeline is everything. You got to yeah. know what's, what's happening at each point, you know, and, and the big picture, cause the big picture tells you about the little details and, and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, s- still struggle to get people to understand that, um, that, you know, the, the most useful tool in every investigation is just a timeline of what the hell you're doing. Uh, but uh, loved your comments. So there, uh, Blake, on on the uh, difficulties in trying to you know maintain synthetic uh, identities and stuff like that's so freaking hard. It really is. It's really it really <laughs> is unbelievable. Like the, the people talk about vulnerability equities, and I think they should really be talking about synthetic identity equities, especially from now until 2020. 21 you know like, <laughs> it's like you know it looks like the 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 current warfare landscape is in the digital field with synthetic identities you either have it or you don't have it and you either you know know how to backstop it don't know how to backstop it and you know you know what kind of ammunition to push you know via memes and you know avoiding object recognition and that kind of stuff it's it's a hard thing um, there's, there's that and, and you know just the, I think the other difficult part is that is you know for those folks that, that trade and traffic in, in those identities providing them to people that don't understand how difficult yeah. they are to produce and the need to maintain them and, uh, and you know I mean it, it's always the, the single slip up right the you know the one faux pas that wrecks you know this, this otherwise beautiful situation um and, you know, and, and we have our own cases that go that way too, right? We had that, uh, you know, issue with the uh, uh, test scam guys a few years back where, you know, everybody thought it was a, is a, it was a Korean run operation and all that. And it turned out it was a couple of guys out in the Midwest who specifically redirected everything to make it look like it was a, you know, test stealing, test fraud operation out of, out of Korea, you know, and, uh, one one individual on that three-man team fouled up and uh you know used used an identity for something he shouldn't have and that was all it took to bring down the whole ring yeah some yeah Yeah, i think i think synthetic data and synthetic accounts especially with the interconnectedness of the internet i mean there are there are ways that you can see data into the internet to establish pretty believable identities right Right. Uh, a lot of different methods and techniques that i'm sure that that we're all aware of and so again figuring out ways you have multiple points of validation from multiple sources and you know timelining brian i think you i think you pointed you know that out uh timeline of your incident and it might take a little bit more time to do and again if you're working on a if you're working uh, on a team where you've got stuff coming in constantly sometimes timelining is very difficult 
but with these serious high-end investigations uh, that, that require really, really in-depth understanding, one of the main things that we do is we timeline the incident. From start to finish, we figure out, you know, if there are any, you know, correlated events related to the timing, uh, what data points might have, right? Based off of the timeline, we're also able to determine, you know, what the touch points were uh, related to the, to the incident, right? If it was a DDoS attack, okay, well, right, this came in at this time, and okay, well, so what, what, what data points do I have related to that, you know, point in time that I could leverage to further, you know, drive uh, my investigative efforts? And so timelining not only helps you break down the incident, but also helps you prioritize and focus on what data points might, you might be able to leverage, right, during your investigative process. All that and separating overlapping incidents, because, you know, that, that human nature where, you know, two things happen at roughly the same time. Oh, it's all about the same incident. Uh, yeah, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, you know. <laughs> There's been some weird coincidences too, man. I'm like, sure. no, these are totally correlated and nope, they're not. It was a coincidence. Yeah, and you yeah. start looking at the yeah. timeline, you're like, that doesn't make any sense if this and here and that and there and that can't possibly be related. You go, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> there I mean, goes my, well, whole, my whole theory is shot. Going back onto the synthetic identities and backstopping, um, I kind of start geeking out on that a lot more. Um, what I found was like, there was this really good book by this guy named Jay Dobbins. He was a undercover guy for the ATF. And he talked about how they, they, the backstop team that, that was a part of that, they even went back in time and, and modified, you know, yearbooks because, <laughs> um, because they knew the, you know, the, the adversaries that they're going to go after, were going to, you know, go and, and, do their due diligence all the way to the end, you know, when the kid, when the guy was a teenager, because that's where, you know, the origin story just couldn't be false. And so um, they just, you know, in those, those backstoppings, um, they just tried to look at like, how far back can we go? And I mean, I think that's going to be a much more difficult thing moving forward um, with, you know, everything, but, well, especially because like kids nowadays have so much data that yeah, they, yeah, they've dumped crazy. online in their youth that if your synthetic person that's supposed to be 23 years old doesn't have, you know, 17 years worth of digital tracks, they're not going to be credible. Right, right. Start seeding it now, boys. Start seeding it now. I know, right? <laughs> I, it's the synthetic equities here. Hashtag synthetic equities. We said it here. You know. But, but I mean, if you think about that, then what, what is it going to cost to actually have, you know, to, you know, for those that are in the business of that, you know, if I've spent years building up all these, these dummy synthetic accounts, you know, what's the cost of those? Uh, you know, Dude, I, I know some of the accounts that we've got, um, they're like 12 years old. Right. that we've just had since forever and like for some reason just because they're so old they just never die now you know and we keep seeding them and it's like when's that gonna die you know like at some point it just keeps living you know so it's super interesting to think about too i think i think synthetic identities moving forward and right we have to be careful of the platform in which we are you know, curating certain bits of data. And, and again, who, you know, who are you scared of? Are you scared of the platform in which you're, you're developing this data? Uh, are you scared of, you know, the individual that might come across that data? You know, figuring out, um, figuring out 
opportunities to maybe operate inside the guidelines that are out there, but at the same time, see the information that makes it look believable. You know, maybe, maybe you did have an account on that platform with that email address. Maybe it just, maybe it got deactivated. You can't tell when it was deactivated, right? Um, but, but you know it was deactivated. And so that might provide a little bit of credibility. And I think in many cases, there are ways that you can piggyback off of perceived credible information, right? Yeah. There's this perception of information that is out there. And based off of just the way people think about it, um, you can piggyback off of, you know, sort of like the psychological approach that people have to some of that data and it going away or whatever it might be. Um, and, and in many cases, I think that that can provide you what you need to, to get your job done. Um, but, but I think it moving forward, especially as invest, investigative accounts become more critical and you know, certain platforms tightening security controls and, and, you know, sort of getting rid of accounts on, on their platforms that, uh, that they don't want to be there, um, it, it makes it difficult. And so we got to be a little bit more creative on how we go about some of this. Right. And, and, and one of the things I really enjoy about synthetic identities and having groups of them is it helps you like leverage some of the algorithms on each platform to give you more insight into those types of groups of people. Like, so like we put, you know, a good amount of effort into, you know, these synthetic identities are only in, you know, the drug drug world. These ones are only in the terrorist world. These ones are only in, you know, the human trafficking world to get those lookalike type, you know, AI algorithms to keep expanding their reach in that particular realm you know so i think that there's a lot of even if you're just capturing stuff in the back end and you're not even engaging the value of synthetic identities leveraged on top of whatever you know let's air quotes ai slash map reduce whatever um outputs the the platform is going to give you it's going to be helpful moving forward as those criminal networks expand and contract you you're kind of already in it and the algorithms are helping you you know so yeah totally agree but um so we're kind of a little over but um as far as the inbox i didn't really have anything in, from the inbox this week on questions and answers from any of our inbounds via email i haven't really asked the twitter person about that so i have nothing right now yeah <laughs> uh, blake we usually have an inbound uh list of questions people ask last last week was location uh geolocation and and how we're saying crap maps are they actually helpful on um, this week i don't really have anything so you'll have to join us again for whatever the random question of the week is yeah sounds good i really appreciate you guys letting me be a part of this and just chatting you know i'd uh, love to come back and be a part of the conversation again but yeah i think it's important to find other people in this space that are doing similar things that are interested um in in similar technologies and uh the community is relatively small yeah. right i think you guys know this and so finding those industry partners that you can leverage where we can share war stories and, and uh, lessons learned and figure out ways to leverage the data that's around us. Cause you know, I might do this, uh, you know, full time, but I'm doing it specifically in the financial vertical. Someone that does it in the you know physical security realm uh, is different than somebody that's doing it for, 
you know, the, the gas and power industry or whatever it might be. And we mm -hmm. all learn these different lessons, tricks, techniques. And I just love, you know, having a platform where we can chat about this stuff because I feel like the best, the best way to learn is, is from each other. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. So, yeah, and, I appreciate and, you guys having me here. Yeah. Well, let's, let's put you on the list to keep, keep coming back and, you know, Hey, we're just launching this podcast. We don't even know if anyone's going to ever like it. Um, <laughs> let's hope so but you know if, if it's just a small sliver of, of candor for an overly marketed universe i'm hoping it's going to be good